Welcome to episode 86 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I am Jesse. And I'm Tony. We're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. I'm just gonna just gonna start using non-standard English uh, cadence because that's how I can maintain a difference each week. That was great. Variety is the spice of life. Yeah, that was pretty spicy right there. I love spicy. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm great because you know what we got going on oh, today. Man, question cast. I love question it. Question cast. I love it so much. I love it too. We got all kinds of great questions lined up tonight. So, what do you say we just Get at it. Let's go. All right. Cue those voicemails. What's up, guys? Uh, this is Ryan calling from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, just wanted to say that I love the show so much. Um, I listen to you guys every week when I'm driving to school and to work. So thank you all for that. Um, and I know people have asked you guys this before, um, and especially in light of this weekend with Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. Um, one of the things that I, that I noticed, especially in the pub, was that there is a opinion that the only reformed position is that we don't celebrate particular days like our Lord's Ascension, um, his, uh, his Nativity, his uh, um, uh, Pentecost, his Baptism. We don't celebrate those. But the, um, one of the things that's always posted in there is the Second Helvetic Confession, I'm saying that that is within um, the liberty of the Christian. So I was wondering, um, and this is primarily for you, Tony, just because you're not in the pub. Um, why, why is it that some people seem to think that the only reform position is that we don't celebrate these particular days? Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, yeah, have a blessed day. What's good, Ryan? Thanks for the kind words and uh, encouragement with the cast. We are glad that you're listening and concerned about Holy Days. Yes, we are. And we also kind of have some concern with Holy Days, right? I mean, we talked about this a little bit before. Yeah. So Holy Days, um, it's one of those topics that you're going to, no matter where you are in the Reformed world, you're going to have to throw up fisticuffs at some point because uh, the people who (laughs) are opposed... Is that the rule? It is. The people who are opposed (laughs) to Holy Days are really, really opposed to Holy Days. And I think, I think that you and I would probably fall in this category that like we, especially this last year, we were kind of like militantly opposed to Holy days. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then there's the people who are like, you're an idiot. Why can't we just unwrap presents on December 25th? So, but the, the problem with that is that it's not, those two things aren't, they aren't actually like saying the same thing. So we've made the point in the past that there's a difference between the church establishing a mandatory Holy day that somehow um, is more spiritually significant than other days of the year, and then enforcing that upon the people of the church. I don't know anyone in the Reformed world that would agree that that is an acceptable practice. I agree with you. Where it starts to get a little more, um, I don't want to say confusing, but a little bit more varied maybe among the Reformed, is what's the role of annual celebrations of significant events in um, redemptive history? So. While we take the strong, the strong militant stance that man-made imposed holy days of a special, you know, spiritual significance are not okay, Jesse and I and our family, 
we still gather at Christmas time and we open presents and we sing Christmas hymns and, you know, we, we celebrate the Lord's incarnation that time of year. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the second Helvetic confession. Um, and before I go on to that, Jesse, did you have any other kinds of thoughts you wanted to add? I think the critical difference for me is compulsion, which is what you're driving at. So yeah. there is liberty to, I think, acknowledge those times and to celebrate them as long as there is no compulsion on the part of the church in that matter. And that would include for me any kind of subtle compulsion, compulsion whether it's given by the church or we put it on ourselves. So for instance, I think Ryan referenced, he left us his voicemail right before the Easter holiday. Right. And I think there's sometimes in some churches, even if there's no formal statement about that Sunday, if you kind of come with the attitude like, well, why are we making such a big deal about this? There's a sense that it's inappropriate to express that opinion yeah. on that day because Easter is for big demonstration. It's for big music. It's for special types of events on that particular Lord's Day. So I think we it's, it's both about having a clear conscience and not being not compelling yourself to follow along with culture, but also recognizing that the church has no right to establish what God has not already established as a celebration. So to me, it's just about where do you put the hegemony? Where is the priority? Right. And it should be where God puts it. But if at the same time, while not under compulsion, like you just talked about, you and I, like, I'm going to get you a gift this Christmas, yeah. just so you know, it's going to be great. <laughs> well, whatever it is. And we're we're both going to enjoy opening those gifts and celebrating, but we're at no time giving that a priority over what God has established yeah. as what should be celebrated as holy days. Yeah. And I think too, it is worth, um, it's worth saying that there's a slight difference between the continental tradition. So like the Dutch tradition specifically and the British tradition. So that would be the difference between the three forms of unity and the Westminster tradition. Um, the Westminster tradition holds a much stricter view of holidays, of whole man-made holy days and the Lord's Day particularly. Um, right. The continental tradition still recognizes the Lord's Day as unique and still holds many of the same types of views, but they have a more relaxed perspective in terms of like recreation. Um, so there's some variance there, and that variance kind of carries over into the concept of holy days as well. The continental tradition tends to, um, I don't want to say they celebrate holy days, but they tend to have a broader acceptance of this sort of recognition of events in redemptive history. Now, Ryan mentioned the Second Helvetic Confession specifically, and um, I don't think that there's many uh, people in our circles um, who are out there really holding to the Second Helvetic Confession, but the Second Helvetic Confession is the confessional uh, statement of the Swiss church. So the, you know, the big names that we talk about are the Dutch, the Dutch church and the British church, and then the kind of the various reform traditions that kind of filter out from there, right? The Baptist tradition, um, some of the like neo-Calvinist, the Kuyperian tradition, that's all sort of traces its way back to those two big bodies. The second Helvetic confession is still used, but um, I'm trying to say this while also being respectful. The second Helvetic confession represents an earlier and I think a less, a less fully baked form of reform Christianity. So for example, the Second Helvetic Confession, if you really want to follow the Second Helvetic Confession, uses the term ever virgin in reference to the Virgin Mary. 
So right. there, there are some in the Reformed tradition that would still affirm that Mary didn't have other children besides Jesus. They would still affirm that she never had sex with Joseph, that she remained a virgin for the rest of her days. So one of the reasons, I mean, I, I've never really studied the Second Helvetic Confession in depth, but that would be one of the reasons why I would say I favor the Westminster tradition, because I think it's a more fully formed, um, fully realized and fully baked out version of Reformed theology kind of the pinnacle of Reformed theology in the confessional era. Um, and I think that that's probably one of the reasons why people sort of minimize that. And frankly, the only place I ever see the second Helvetic confession brought out is in support of Christmas or Easter. Right, so I, exactly. I, I kind of have to question whether or not the people who are pulling that out really think that that's part of the Reformed tradition, or if that's just kind of their ace in the hole for being able to do what they would like. And that's that probably sounded more kind of snarky than it was intended. To be able to support this practice that they think is okay, they kind of pull out the Second Helvetic Confession right. as like, well, see, there's this Reformed tradition that, that thinks is okay. But that's really kind of like a misuse of a confession is to say like, well, the only time I'm ever going to use it is when it supports the position I want to bring forward. Um, so I would just be careful with that kind of practice in general. Um, and that's how I see it used often. Yeah, it's definitely not as fully orbed that's fair to say. Right. Some of the other expressions of the Reformed tradition. And for that matter, I don't even think you need to bring it to bear in this light. I think right. that you can celebrate these days, not as holy days, but as something that is worthy of sharing affection and love in a Christ-centered and God-honoring way, in so much as it does not conflict with what God has established, which is mainly the Lord's Day. Yeah. So I think we, we could go a little bit easy on each other on this. But what's funny is, we're saying that, and yet also this entire year, yeah, we definitely railed against. We did, <laughs> like, like holy days writ large. Yeah, well, and for me, it really kicked off with Ash Wednesday, and so Ash Wednesday, or Ryan mentioned Monday Thursday. Um, although Monday Thursday's in a different category than Ash Wednesday, Ash Wednesday is not a day to celebrate an event in redemptive history. That's so, totally so for me, Ash Wednesday is kind of like the, it's an example of every wrong impulse that Christians have in reference to creating these kinds of celebrations that are um, formed outside of biblical commands. Um, because one, it's not celebrating an event in redemptive history. Two, it entirely circulates around a man-made activity and tradition that only makes sense if the, the practice of ashing has some sort of enhanced spiritual significance. Even if it's not a sacramental uh, sufficiency or um, efficiency, it still has some sort of spiritual significance embedded in the ritual. So I would say that's that's really where you have to go. Is if you're celebrating something that God did on behalf of his people and someone is criticizing you for that, then just ignore them. I mean it's it's right. just dumb right. for someone to say you, you you because it's December you can't you can't reflect on the incarnation. Because right. it's spring you can't reflect on the resurrection and crucifixion that's stupid i mean that's just dumb but things like ash wednesday or things like creating new rituals around that so like good friday that's a celebration of a, an act in redemptive history but there's all sorts of like rituals that that um if you don't think that they have special spiritual significance just try suggesting to the old people in your church that you don't do it next year and you'll see what happens so like a lot of churches have this practice where they make like a sound of nailing to a cross at the end of their ash wednesday service and then they all fall it file out in silence 
Right. So if you want to see whether that's some sort of compulsory ritual, pull out your phone and start listening to some music right after that in the sanctuary and see what happens. You're going to see real quickly. <laughs> I'm not actually suggesting that you do that because that would be really disrespectful. But you would see very quickly that that practice has a very significant spiritual impact on people. So that itself tells you maybe this is not something we should be engaging. We just revealed the straight up geriatric bias right there. Just, uh, yeah, yeah. But I know what you mean. But see, that's the thing we're talking about that is a little bit unpopular to discuss is all the subtleties around it. It's one thing to be like, for I think for the most part, people would agree. Yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with Ash Wednesday. In fact, like the only thing dumber than being criticized for celebrating in liberty some redemptive act is actually celebrating something that has no redemptive significance and is right. totally man-made so yeah i guess that is a qualification we should say like you already kind of articulated yeah. like you can't just make flag day right a holy day <laughs> if you do then it's not it's yeah you can't make anything a holy day <laughs> exactly that's right. that's what yeah basically what we're saying so yeah i think we pretty much killed that one yep let's uh let's rock the next one here we I'm excited. Go. Hello, Tony and Jesse. My name is Catherine, and I'm calling from all the way across the United States in Oregon. I have a question for you, and it has to do with something uh, very practical that I'm dealing with right now at my church. Um, we recently um, left, our church recently left the PCA denomination and joined the RCA because my pastor changed his views on women in the ministry. Now, I am a complementarian, and I have been there, so I've known about this now for probably a year, year and a half, and I've continued going because I do place a lot of importance on the vows I took to membership in our community there and not causing um, disunity over disputable matters. But we are coming up on officer elections, and I know that there is a possibility that we could elect some women into uh, the role of elder, and I'm just really struggling with my convictions and what would be the right thing to do in this situation. Um, and then to throw a wrench in the matter, uh, my husband doesn't maybe have the strong convictions about complementarianism that I do. And so um, if the right thing to do would be to leave the church over this matter, uh, but my husband doesn't determine that, then, you know, is it right for me to just stay, um, even though I disagree that there are women in the roles of elder at our church and, um, you know, submitting to that authority? Anyways... Thanks for your podcast. I really enjoy it. Really love listening to all the episodes on technical theology the most. Um, and just really appreciate what you guys do. Thanks. Bye. All right, Catherine. Thank you for that voicemail. This is an amazing question. And I just want to say right off the top that I think first, is it courageous for Catherine to ask these yeah. series of questions? Yeah. And I think it's also great that she was willing to share because there's no way she's the only person who's ever been in this position who's been kind of contemplating this particular idea and the dynamic in their church. Yeah. So where do we start on this? Well, um, the first thing would be just our standard disclaimer that we are not pastors and we're not Catherine's pastor. And not um, a pastor. The difficulty is that our normal advice would be to consult your pastor. 
but given the nature of the question, that may not um, may not Could be, be challenging. Yeah, that may be challenging. So I would say in that situation, it would be appropriate to kind of loop in another pastor from another church that you uh, trust from a denomination that is uh, is reasonable about how they select and train their elders. Um, it would not be inappropriate to sort of seek a second opinion. Um, normally, I wouldn't actually advise that. Normally, I would say you should to talk to your pastor first, but I can understand that this would be difficult. Uh, but the way that this breaks down is uh, the RCA is a very interesting denomination. And Jesse and I talked a little bit about this before we started the show. We don't want to get too bogged down in the specifics of the RCA, but I think it would be important um, just to sort of set the stage for what Catherine is talking about, because most reformed denominations, this doesn't come up. And right. I will be honest that as I looked into this, I tried really hard to find something in um, the RCA's theology or in other stances on other issues that would give me a clear cut way to say, run away from this as fast as you can. And it's not there. So they're, they're solidly Trinitarian. They um, affirm the historic confessions of the continental church, the three forms of unity. Not exactly sure how they do that consistently with um, the ordaining of women. But they do ordain women to the office of what would be the equivalent, it looks like, of a ruling elder in like a Presbyterian denomination. So they're they're not teaching elders. They're, they don't appear to be people who would be filling the pulpit, although I can imagine that um, someone who is, is an elder may be called to fill the pulpit from time to time if pa- the pastor's away, um, especially if there's like a sudden um, absence, someone goes to the hospital or something. Um, so it's not un, it's not out of the realm of possibility from what I can read that you may end up with a woman preaching from the pulpit on the Lord's Day or even possibly presiding over the Lord's Supper. Um, so I think we have to be careful on this front because in a strict reading of um, kind of the, the traditional Reformed marks of what the church is, a church that has women elders who are teaching or exercising authority would make that such it is not a visible church. It's not a particular church in the visible church. And the reason that I say that is that the three marks of the church, generally speaking, that the Reformed uh, recognize is the right preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and the proper execution of church discipline. So I just wanted to read a quick section from uh, the uh, RCA's Book of Church Order. And it's on uh, page 22 of their Book of Church Order. It's section four. It says, The Board of Elders shall exercise Christian discipline with respect to any who continue in sin without repentance. Um, It then goes on to say that all members of the church are subject to this discipline. And it says, The Board of Elders shall admonish or rebuke or, if necessary, suspend from the privileges of the Lord's table any who should be so disciplined. It shall be the privilege of the Board of Elders to receive the penitent into fellowship of the church again. So what this is saying is that were a woman to be uh, ordained to the office of elder in uh, Catherine's church, then this woman would be part of the group that would um, effectively excommunicate someone. And so we can't say, it's not possible to say that this visible church would be properly executing church discipline if there was a woman who was on the board who was responsible for the church discipline. Now, that probably seems like kind of an extreme view, but we're talking about um, the sacraments. We're talking about the visible signs and seals of 
um, God's covenant with us. And so it, it is a really big deal. So I think in Catherine's position, in her situation, if she was in a local congregation of the RCA, um, I would not advise leaving the church unless or until the actual event happens that a woman is ordained to office. Right. So the potential for a woman to be ordained to office, um, I would say, doesn't necessarily make this not a church. Um, the actuality of this of a woman being ordained to office does make this not a visible church. And that's a hard stance. And I really, um, I don't want to get like emotional, but like my heart kind of breaks for Catherine because this is such a difficult, tricky situation. And I guess, like you said, I'm sure there's other people that are in similar kinds of situations. Right. And I also want to affirm her commitment to her church. This is the right way to go about something. Somebody who has a tender heart that takes the vows they've made in memberships this seriously because a lot of people, their natural inclination or what's normative is just to bolt when something annoys them, when something goes wrong, when something doesn't seem quite right. So I appreciate that even over a year's time, I think she said, she's kind of been sorting through this and trying to, I think, discern what direction the church is going. And so when I think we're seeking to determine whether women should be elevated to a certain office in the local church, we should be concerned with the actual functional authority that each church invests in that position. Right. Yeah, and so that's exactly. something that you've already fleshed out. So there is reason to be concerned. Yeah. And so I think her concerns are, are well-founded. So I think the, t- the tough task is going to be if this happens and women are elected or they're even being brought up for eldership, then how Catherine decides to sort through that with her pastor, because I'm going to presume that when she says he has changed his mind, that he has not necessarily just decided to go against the scripture, but for some reason believes that the scripture supports right. this opinion. Right. So it, it might be helpful for us to kind of flesh out even just like really broad brush brush some scriptures that might help her to sort that out. And in conversation with her husband, as she, I think we would both admonish her to, to continue to open dialogue with him about the depth of her conviction yeah, and maybe even bring forward some passages that they might look at together and meditate on over time that would help clarify. Yeah. And before you, um, before we go into that, I do think too, it's important because in um, Catherine's denomination, there's a real clear definition because it's, more or less a reformed structure. Um, There's a real clear definition of what an elder is, what an elder does, what a deacon is, what a deacon does. All of that is laid out in their book of church order. It's not always going to be the case that those definitions are that clear. So if you're in a situation where there is talk of bringing someone into the role of elder um, in your church, if you're maybe you're in like a local Baptist church that is an autonomous congregation it's really important for you to understand that the, the the word elder is sort of inconsequential in the discussion. Exactly. What you have to look at is what the what the person in question would actually be ordained or el- or elected or whatever the word would be used to do. And the the office of elder, and we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about this with some scripture support, but the office of elder functions on the basis of teaching and um exercising authority, right? We're going to, I'm sure we're going to talk about the Timothy passage, but what Paul restricts women from doing is, is not, not necessarily teaching in itself and not necessarily exercising authority in itself, but the dual action of teaching and exercising authority. It's really right. important that those two are linked. That's the definition of an elder is a, a man who exercises authority and teaching authoritatively 
over a congregation whom God has put them in charge of. So if you have a situation where someone is being elected to el- to elder, and I'm making air quotes, and what that really means is like they are on like a committee that decides like budgetary questions. Well, you can argue whether or not that's a role that a woman should be making or should be filling, but that's not necessarily what's being talked about. It's not at all what's being talked about when we talk about the New Testament office of elder. So in that kind of situation, I I think it might be ill-advised. It might not be wise. And it might be a good reason to start looking for another church, but it doesn't invalidate that local congregation as a local instance of the visible church, Um, the way that a woman who is preaching from the pulpit or administering the sacraments would. Exactly. That was well said. It's basically, as I would articulate it, it's the actualizing of women in that role that starts to make it not part of the visible visible church or does just make it not starts to. So in that might be like the very first thing I would say in terms of a defense for male only eldership. It's exactly what you said. The new Testament basically gives two functions for elders, which you've already said to govern a rule and to teach. And we could probably throw out a ton of scriptures. So maybe some of this we can put in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but Paul gives explicit instruction in like all over the New Testament. Like he cannot stop writing about this. Right. And so with the verses you already referenced, First Timothy two, Paul restricts teaching and exercising authority to men. So it follows that the office of elder or bishop, which are somewhat synonymous, is restricted to men. So if you go to First Timothy three, Acts twenty, First Peter five, First Thessalonians five, Hebrews thirteen, you're gonna find that there's all this explicit instruction about the primary responsibility of teaching and oversight. So what's interesting is you have to look at these passages together because Paul is presenting specific argumentation to specific churches, meeting specific needs in different letters. And as you take them as a whole, what you'll find is this wonderful consistency. They're all congruent. But if you take anyone by itself, you're not going to get the full picture of both the responsibility that he's granting and then also to whom he is giving that responsibility. That is to what gender. Right. And so that's why you have to look at, in other words, I've seen people take like just acts out of context and say, well, see, this isn't, isn't specific to men or women, but Paul would say, I'm sure, well, that's not all I wrote on this. Right. And there's a, there's a fully orb definition of eldership that I'm trying to, to differentiate. So at least for me, I think that's a, that's a good place you started. That's a big one. Are there any other things, any other passages that you think really kind of help flesh this out? Yeah. I mean, Part of this and part of what happens is the the idea that like, well, these are contextual things that are being brought up. Um, that actually works in the benefit of the complementarian's view more than you would think. So the, um, the fact that um, Paul talks about certain things that are characteristically male without specifically saying that they're characteristically male doesn't only um, explicitly confirm he's talking about men, but it shows you that in his mind, the people that he's talking about are inherently men. So sometimes people will look at like the passage um, in first Timothy that says, I do not permit a man or a woman to teach or usurp authority over man, all that whole thing. And they say, well, that's contextual. It had to do with what was going on in Ephesus at the time, blah, 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 you know? And the problem with that is primarily though, that, Paul is still thinking about men in this role. So if he had wanted to say, well, because of what's going on in your particular congregation, in your particular context, only a woman or only a man should teach. He could have easily said that. 
But the characteristics that he brings out for what makes a good elder, for what is required of an elder, are inherently, in the first century, are inherently masculine things. So first, uh, first Timothy 3, it says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Okay, if you wanted to make the argument that well, what it's saying is just a person who's only married to one person. Okay, let's just grant that for the sake of argument. Okay, okay. I don't think that that's legit, but let's right. grant that. He goes on and says, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Well, in the first century, the idea of a woman teacher would be totally incoherent. So we can already see that Paul is not thinking in terms of, this could be a man or a woman, but I'm just going to talk about the, the masculine stuff. He's thinking in terms of men. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. That is not the kind of thing anybody in the first century could have possibly said about a woman. Managing their own household well is the role of a husband and a father in the first century. And I would argue in, in the 21st century, too. And as right. you go through the list, all of these things that he's talking about are, are characteristics that would have been almost exclusive to men in the first century. So the idea that Paul was only addressing the local context just doesn't work because it's, it, it really is just an argument that has to be constructed in order to justify something that a person already wants to do. You can never come to these texts and say, well, that doesn't really mean just one man. And then if you go down to the qualifications for deacons, starting in verse 8, he actually includes qualifications for the deacon's wife as well. Right, so, exactly. So it's, really, a difference it's really clear here that Paul has in mind that the people who lead and rule and teach the church in an authoritative fashion are men. Now, that doesn't mean that women are not leaders of a certain sort in the church, but they're leaders in the sort that are not authoritative leaders. They're not right. authorities in the church. And that those aren't the same thing. I think sometimes people think they are. So it's really important that we understand that the purpose of male leadership in the church is um, rooted in God's command. And if you constitute the church in a way that's contrary to how God has defined the church, then you are no longer constituting the church anymore. You're constituting something else. Right. It would be like if um, if the founding fathers, we'll get into some of this later, I guess, actually. But if the, if the Constitution of the United States said this is how the government is to be organized, and then all of a sudden we decide, well, no, we want a king instead. And so we, we somehow rule, we... I don't know, nominate a king or whatever, we, we create a throne and we someone ascends to this throne. Well, okay, but we're no longer we're no longer the American government as constituted by the United States Constitution. And it's kind of the same thing. The scriptures, God's commands and scriptures constitute the church. And so if we if we arrange the church in a way that's different than how he's constituted, then we are no longer the visible church. And that's why the reformers recognize those three marks, because that those were the hallmarks that God used in constituting the church. The church exists where the gospel is being preached under the authority of leadership, male leadership, a plurality of elders, who is uh, properly administering the sacraments, and a related function of that is properly disciplining, which primarily right. takes the form of withholding the sacraments to someone who is in ongoing sin, namely the Lord's Supper. So those things really are the central features and the core marks of the church. And if we're going outside of that, then we're going outside of what the church is. And those distinctives must necessarily exist because then we have no definition otherwise. So exactly. it's not like we're towing a hard line, but it's one that's 
both historically sound and biblically sound. I mean, not to mention Paul, like you already said, is super clear on this. Yeah. Now we can, I think what you said is really good that we need to understand the cultural underpinnings from which he is basing everything on, like what he would be assuming as he writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so for that matter, not only do we have some explicit language like husband of one wife, which is kind of a clue right there. Yeah. But there is no reference anywhere in the New Testament to a female elder. And I right. recognize that that's an argument from silence, but we simply have no biblical precedent for female elders, nor anything in the text that would describe their nature, function, or qualifications right. that would lead us to believe that that could ever be a possibility. Yeah. So this is one of those places where I think the best thing that Christians can do, especially Reformed Christians, is let's let God be God. This exactly. is the way that he has established it. He knows best. So. He is bringing in roles for men and for women, and they have different priority because that's the way that God has established them. But I like what you said. I don't think either of us, because we love our wives and they're involved in our churches, that we would ever say their own leadership and their own service in different capacities is worthless or not spirit-filled or not enriching the life of the church as God has called them to be a part of. So, But the bottom line is, when Christ, who is the good shepherd, he, when he raises up a church, he also raises up under shepherds. They are his provision for us. So this is a serious matter. And it yeah. is a serious enough matter where not only are you losing the definition of the church in terms of its articulation of the things that it should subscribe to, you're losing a major function, which is why when Paul emphasizes the importance of elders in completing the local church, he's writing to Titus and says, it's for this reason I left you in Crete. Yeah. So you would set in order what remains and appoint elders everywhere, all over the place. Yeah. So the message is clear that until elders are in place, the right ones whom God has established by his authority, something is very lacking in the formation of a local church. So it's definitional and it's functional. And so I think that uh, just really empathize with, with Catherine's heart, who, as she tries to kind of understand what this means for her and her family. And so I hope that this might be helpful. Some of these scriptures, some of this way of thinking, I, I think we both encourage her to open up good conversation with her husband Yeah, because he is the leader of their family. And so this is tricky. And, you know, I, I like to think that my wife can come to me with issues that she thinks are of important theological nature and if we have disagreement or she has a particular conviction that I don't hold maybe in the same magnitude, she can bring it to me and we can prayerfully consider those things together. And then I think that she is willing to submit in that decision, but she wants to ensure that I've processed it in a way that's commensurate with her conviction. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, does that make sense? Yeah. And I think I want to be really careful here because I don't, I don't know Catherine's husband. I don't know anything about their marriage besides the very small information that she's given us in this voicemail. But I think um, it's important, uh, and this may seem counterintuitive, but I would not suggest um, that a woman or a, a man leave a church that their spouse will not also leave with them. Right, exactly. So I, I, agree with I would say that it, it is more of a detriment to your spiritual life and to your marriage and to everything for a spouse couple to be worshiping at different churches. Um, even with everything that I said about this not being a, a local visible church, all that stuff. Um, the only exception that I would make in that is if they were preaching straight out formal heresy. If all of a sudden they weren't Trinitarians anymore or something like that, then then you get out of there. Go away from that church. 
But if the only issue, and looking at the RCA specifically, to get back to the specific instance, if the only real issue that's going on is that there is women elders being ordained, even if a woman elder is ordained, then that is not something I would suggest, um, that I would suggest a spouse going somewhere else without their spouse coming with them. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in terms of how to handle this within the marriage, I think you're absolutely right. Um, she should go to her husband with her convictions and she should um, gently and respectfully and cautiously at times um, continue to press the issue. Right on. Um, if, if her husband is anything like me, he's not going to love uh, this coming up over and over again over time. Um, and it's probably going to frustrate him at times and there's probably going to be fights over it. And that is all very difficult, but it's important enough that the issue is not dropped. Um, but it, the, the unity of the family and the, the embodied partnership in worship is more important. And most of all, I'd say just pray, 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 pray. Yeah, for um, sure. You know, if, if your husband is, um, faithfully seeking the scriptures and is, faithfully trying to lead uh, your family in the, you know, in the worship of the Lord and in the teachings of the scriptures, then pray that God will um, open his eyes to this particular aspect. Um, you know, and this is, you know, people face this kind of thing with a whole host of theological issues. My, sure. you know, something like, well, my, you know, my husband's not a Calvinist. My husband's not reformed or my husband isn't a hundred percent sure about um, the, you know, this or that or the other thing. Um, it goes the same. Like if you're convinced that this is the scriptural position, then just come quietly and gently and respectfully continue to bring it up and press the point um, in wisdom and pray that the Holy Spirit either changes them to correct their view, but also recognize you also need to pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to scripture as well. Right. It's It right. can't just be I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to pray until you come to my side of things. Um, I think you're right. I mean, obviously we're complementarians, so we think that you're right. But you have to go into these conversations um, with the acknowledgement that you are also a fallible human coming to Scripture and interpreting Scripture as well. Even just pragmatically, that's that's the best way for the conversation to move forward. And the last thing I'll say is, I think there's really something beautiful about how Catherine is working through this because she's basically putting forth the best testimony possible. She's yeah. doing the very thing that I think the Scriptures would have each of us to do in her in this particular situation to be humble and to be thoughtful and to be testing and to going about this the right way, exactly. not wanting to cause dissension. I love that that was her first thought was, I want to honor those involved. And I can't see how God is not going to use that to bring about some resolution through time because just the way in which she's approaching that is just a beautiful testimony. Yeah. And, and one last thought before we move on to the next question. Engage your pastor, even though I acknowledge that this is probably going to be awkward. Um, he's at least for the time being, he's still your pastor. Right, and so exactly. it's important, you know, I, I'm not a pastor, but I don't know a pastor who, if a congregation member came to them and said, I'm really wrestling with this theological position that the church has adopted, um, would not, would not do diligence to work through that with them. And in many cases to say, you know, it, you have my permission to go. Let's help find another church where you're not going to right. feel at odds with what we're saying here. Um, and even go so far as to say, like, well, let, let's let's talk to your husband together about this, because obviously it's clear that you're uncomfortable, that you're struggling with this. And, um, you know, in some senses, in, in a situation where the husband is kind of indifferent, 
it may just take someone besides the person in question saying to them, why don't you, why don't you think about going somewhere else where your spouse can be more comfortable and more um, at ease with the theological positions that are going right on. Because at some point, if you and your husband decide that it is appropriate for you to leave because the female elders have been actualized, you're going to have to, and probably you need to articulate why it is that you're leaving. So where it's probably good to bring that up at, this point, not as a threat, yeah, but just as a way of expressing concern. And that might just be an open invitation if you haven't had the opportunity yet for your pastor to explain why he believes this is true. And if you come prepared, not to argue, but with a firm conviction from the scriptures, like we've just been talking about, about why you believe the Bible supports complementarianism, you're going to have a great conversation at least. That yeah. should be a productive time. So I think that that's, you're right. It is worth doing and just doing that kind of graciously and cautiously. Yeah. Wow, that was a lot about elders. It was. It was. I'm kind of tired now. <laughs> the look on your face is like, man, it's nap time. All right. It is nap we time. can't can't stop, won't stop. We no, got more, we got more, more questions. We have so many voicemails. Next one. It's amazing. I know. I love the voicemails. All right, next voicemail. Hey guys, uh first just thank you for your podcast. It's a blessing and an encouragement to me. And I look forward to listening to it every week. Uh my name is Jonathan and I'm originally from Virginia. It's funny, uh, Scott Martin, who's called you guys about uh, Reform Techno, I believe, referred me to the podcast, and I've been listening for about six months or so. Um, and while I'm an American and cannot talk in a cool, non-American accent, I'm currently outside of the continental U.S. in Hawaii uh, on an assignment with the military, so hopefully I can satisfy a fraction of your desire to hear from someone far away. Anyway. Uh, I just finished listening to episode 83 on taxation and submission, and I wanted to ask a question that I thought of while listening to the episode. So since we are commanded by God to submit to the governing authorities, Romans 13, uh, that he has you know, sovereignly put in place in all the ways you explained in the taxation and submission episode, my question is related to voting and utilizing our government given and therefore God-given right to participate in our government. So my question is, are Christians morally obligated to vote? And if so, to what degree are we morally obligated? Like, is it a black and white issue making it simple to give up your right to participate and theoretically influence or have a voice in the government when given the opportunity? Or is there a gray area here with any Christian freedom? Uh, so I've tossed around this question in my head and just wanted to hear your take on the question. I appreciate you, and thanks for taking the time to do the podcast, and hope to hear from you soon. All right, so I'm pretty sure, you correct me if I'm wrong, Tony, Jonathan has just broken the record for voicemail from like the longest physical distance from us, because if he's chilling in Hawaii, yeah, I'm pretty sure that is the farthest call we receive. So thank you, Jonathan. And for that matter, Jonathan, thank you for your service yes. to our country in the military. Yeah. We're really grateful for that. Absolutely. And his question is a really good one because of that episode we did about taxation, which everybody loves. So in light of the command to submit to the government that we talked about in Romans 13, what do you think? Are Christians morally obligated to vote? And if so, to what degree are they obligated? Well, in our country, in the United States of America, voting is not compulsory. So it's not so much a question between submitting to the government or voting because you would not be outside of submission to the government for declining to vote. 
It's not illegal. It's not illegal. It's not compulsory to vote. So you you can both submit to the governing authority and refuse to vote, and those two things are not in conflict. Uh, I do think, however, that Christians have an obligation to participate in the government under which they are, um, under which they are. So that doesn't necessarily mean you have to vote, though. So the, the the way that I would say it is a conscious decision not to vote is in itself participating in our government. And the right not to vote is a right. So places where they've tried to make compulsory voting, the, the courts in those areas have actually ruled saying, no, the, the, the fact that our voting is free is part of our constitution. We cannot compel people to vote um, because that violates their freedom of expression, basically. But one thing that I think Christians are not free to do is to just be apathetic about the situation. Right. So a Christian who just forgets to vote or can't be bothered to, you know, get off their butt and go down to the local voting place. I think that that is a dereliction of responsibility. But I know that in previous elections, um, I'm thinking when it was Mitt Romney and Obama, um, I declined to vote. I, I just chose not to. It was a conscious decision. I couldn't in good conscience vote for either of them. And so I, I declined not to vote in the presidential election. I went and I voted for my local elections, for state senate and representatives, all that. But I just left the presidential election ballot blank. Um, in the most recent election with um, President Trump and Hillary Clinton, I wrote in a candidate. So I, I exercised my right in a different way. And if, if it was funny because Jesse and I independently wrote in the same person without, <laughs> same even, person. without even talking about it ahead of time. <laughs> Um, so I think I think it's a great question, though, and and the fact that you're asking the question reveals that you have the right perspective on how Christians work in our government situation. Yes, um, it it really is. We're obligated to participate in the government because the government is us in America. We the people are the government, and so so it the only way that you escape that is by just casually ignoring it. There's other than right. that, there you you are participating in the government. Um, you're participating in what you're called to. So, as Americans, I would say, is there a civic obligation to vote? I would say yes, but the Christian obligation is one that's far higher, or the standards far higher than just civics. So, I think it goes back to something we talked about when you and I did that episode about voting. Yeah. And that was the, the normative ethic for us. The standard is love. What is the loving thing to do? Right. And there's no doubt the loving thing to do is to be a participant and a representative of Jesus Christ, in so much as the government allows us to do that. So, I think we should want to vote, but not out of any kind of compulsion, even civic, but as Christians to say, what is the most loving thing that I can do? And that's to represent Jesus right. by way of trying to pick those who will love, help love my neighbors as I want to love them. So I think we get caught up sometimes in feeling like, well, should we, what is the, where's the responsibility? As an American, we know, relatively speaking, we have this amazing opportunity and right, which most of the world doesn't have to at least speak forward a voice. And I can go and have my little statistical checkbox counted towards something. And so therefore, if I just sit here, that makes me feel so guilty because not everybody else has that. Right. And I would submit that's still the wrong reason to go and vote right. as a Christian. Yeah. That there is a bigger standard, a bigger understanding for why we even get up to express our opinion. And we should be using that not so much to like promote a political agenda, but again, to figure out how we can love our neighbors best. Exactly. And that's what voting really is. It's just another extension of that whole process. Yeah. So be because I think sometimes people are made to feel guilty and I'm 
I'm just going to be totally honest with everybody. I'm way better at voting or being a participant in the national elections than I am in the local elections. Yeah. I don't know. You're probably a really good local voter, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is so spot on. Um, and it is, if you go back, I think it was like episode three or four. I'll put the link in the show notes. But um, I am not a theonomist. And if you don't know what that is, basically a theonomist is someone who wants to take the Old Testament civic laws, not just the moral laws, but the civic laws, and um, apply them in a much more direct fashion to our current government. So they, some of the most extreme theonomists, um, and I use the word extreme intentionally, would uh, advocate for like capital punishment for Sabbath breakers. Like that, that's the kind of stuff that sometimes you see. Um, I'm not that, but there is nothing wrong, and I would say there is everything right with utilizing our God-given right to vote in our country to advocate for laws that further justice. Right. right? Exactly. That ad- advocate for laws that pro- prevent people from um, oppressing and taking advantage and hurting other people. And so as a Christian, um, if I have the ability, so here's a, here's a concrete example in our local election. Um, we are blessed that we don't pay taxes because we don't own property. But in um, my town, which is Canaan, New Hampshire, and the neighboring town, which is Enfield, New Hampshire, they share a school, right? So there's one high school that services both communities. And somewhere back in the day, there was an agreement that was based on the number of students enrolled from each um, town would determine the percentage of funding and percentage of taxation that paid for the school. In one of these most recent elections, there was some backroom deals that um, one of the towns, and it was our town, Canaan, was going to, uh, even though they had more students enrolled, they had made deals to have less of the tax benefit. So they were paying proportionately less per student than the town of Enfield was. That is an unjust situation. And so we have the opportunity to go and vote in order to say, no, this is an unjust situation. So even though it will end up costing our town more money, the residents of our town more money, it's still unjust, and so we don't want it to happen. I don't actually remember what happened with the vote. I don't remember what the outcome was. But I exercised my civic responsibility to do that in order to advocate for a more just arrangement. That's an opportunity most people in the world don't have. Right. And that's the point. I think that should be, no pun intended, what governs us <laughs> into... That's so lame. The fact that what you emphasize us. the word governs tell me that the pun was intended. <laughs> Your intonation determined that that was a lie. It, it just happens. It just happens. Um, yeah, but that should be the reason why we go out and we vote and should dictate who we vote for. Because at the end of the day, I think it's still really helpful to remember that no salvation is going to come through the government. And we, we just need to be careful how, whole, how high we hold it up in those who are representing us. Because I'm not a theonomist either. I can empathize with the fact of wanting to have the rule of law be entirely godly. But that is what the new heaven and new earth is going to be like. We know that day is coming. We know it will not exist here. It doesn't mean that we don't necessarily try to fight for it. But we also look at the Old Testament and see that Morality cannot be legislated. Yeah. So the best thing that we can do is try to influence through love by serving our neighbors and using voting as just one means which God has given us to do that. So 
I think, yeah, there is a civic obligation, but we're way beyond that when it comes yeah. to being children of the king. Yeah, absolutely. How about we stay on this like theme of governments and stuff and hit another sweet voicemail question? Well, let's do it. Hey, guys, this is Kyle again. I wanted to ver- clarify my question and make it more clear. So in response to your episode on taxation and submission and to another podcast that's reformed that was saying essentially that as Christians we need to oppose President Donald Trump's um, opposition to California. I forget what the specific issue was because we need to defend states' rights. Um, but while reading a biography about Alexander Hamilton and the beginning of our nation, the with the Article of Confederation, the federal government had no power to tax its state and do and function as a united front. And plus with their knowledge of total depravity and Romans thirteen like, how do we as Christians come up with a balanced theology about the sphere through which the federal government works and state and then the people where there's no tyranny but no anarchy at the same time? Thanks, guys, and keep up the hard work. I really enjoy your podcast. Bye. All right, Tony, this is a great question. So, Kyle is bringing up something I, I didn't even think about when we recorded our episode. Wait, wait. He's bringing up this. Before before he said, did he say he was reading a biography of Alexander Hamilton? <laughs> yes. Because I Ky- think he might Kyle be re- my listening brother. to the wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Reformed Brotherhood. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, Kyle. Kyle I'm- is my brother. He's yes. my man. Yeah, I love that. I, lo- I want to <laughs> read that. Have you read that Alexander Hamilton biography by Ron Chernow? No. It's supposedly awesome. No. I, that sounds like a book you would like. <laughs> it's supposedly great. I mean, if you can make a hip hop musical out of it, how bad can it be? True. True that. It's got to be great. So he's drawing in Hamilton and talking about states' rights and the federal government and one submitting to the other. And then he throws in this backdrop of total depravity. So that should be like a really easy thing to handle. So go ahead. I'm just going to let you kick that bad boy well, off. I was hoping you were going to take care of this what, one. What you got, Tony? So. This is one of those interesting questions that I think uh, ends up with an answer that nobody really likes. Is mm, This is our style. Then. So it, my take on the issue, and I'm not a political science person. Um, I, I hate politics. I try to I pay attention as much as I need to to fulfill the obligations we talked about in the previous question. But the difficult situation in this is that a lot of Christians use the fact that our federal government has taken certain rights that they don't have from the state's government, so says the argument, to say, well, we can we can ignore the federal government and just go with the state government. What I think this really results in is actually you have two governments that you need to submit to. So rather than freeing yourself from the federal government, what you actually end up doing is saying, I have these two magistrates now that I need to submit to. Right. Now, the question he brought up, he referenced that he was clarifying. Um, I'm not 100% familiar with the situation that he was referencing with President Trump and California. Um, but as a general rule, um, there's a there's a theory called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate that Calvin and Knox, people in that kind of tradition, advocated. And more or less, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate 
is that individuals do not have the right to rebel against uh, the magistrate. But someone who is a lesser magistrate has the right and the responsibility to rebel against the greater magistrate if the greater magistrate is imposing something that is unjust. So in the situation with Donald Trump, I think it was something about abortion, if I remember reading correctly. It was, right. That um, President Trump was sort of overstepping the bounds of the federal government in order to do something to minimize abortion going on in California. And there was another podcast that was actually saying he shouldn't be doing that, which is just insane to me. And so even though the federal government is not a greater magistrate or a lesser magistrate in reference to the state government, they're kind of a parallel magistrate. Um, In some senses, the state government actually is supposed to be the greater magistrate. So President Trump stepping in and telling the California government, no, you can't do this and doing what it takes to stop it is actually an example of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. So the whole point of that is to say, though, that the right of rebellion or the right of resistance falls on the lesser magistrate, generally speaking, in the reform tradition, not on the individuals, the individual citizens under that magistrate. So we talked about taxation and and talked about submission and taxation. An individual, I don't think, has the right to rebel against the taxation on the basis that the taxation is illegal. It may be the case that federal taxation is legal. I'm not a, I'm not a political science person. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. But if that's the case, then it's the state's responsibility to advocate for their state citizens in fighting that federal magistrate. Exactly. Not the individual person. And really, only the Christian is the one who, who, if they're following closely after the Lord Jesus Christ, only the Christian is the one that can stand in between tyranny and anarchy. Right. And that's really the only person who can prevent from falling into one side or the other. So to your point, if we're going to try to use Romans 13 here, I think we really have to stretch that passage a bit because what's in view there is not trying to understand what governmental agencies should submit to one another. But Paul is really admonishing the Christian on how to behave. And in our country, you're right. I think Tony, unfortunately, it just means you get to double fist submission. You got the federal government and you've got the state government. And that happens to us all the time. For instance, like the, the changes in our country that are happening around legalized marijuana is a good example of that. And so if you try to invoke the lesser there, you're probably going to get yourself in trouble one way or the other. And I don't think that is what what Paul would have you to do. Right. Yeah, that's a perfect example. So we live in New Hampshire, but Vermont is right next door. Vermont has legalized recreational marijuana, which if you know anyone from Vermont. Who is surprised? It makes sense. I'm just kidding. (laughs) We have a couple listeners in Vermont and I love you guys. Um, But the federal government still, as, as a matter of law, they say marijuana is illegal. So some people will say, well, the federal government doesn't have a right to say that. Well, that may or may not be the case. I am not a constitutional scholar, and neither are most people that I've talked to. But that doesn't change the fact that they still are the government and they still have said that. So until such a time comes that they have been sued by a state, which is probably what it's going to come down to, they have been sued by a state and no longer carry that, or the Supreme Court rules that that's not a constitutional use of their authority, you still have to submit to that law. I know people don't like that. For whatever reason, there's like a Christian population that really wants to smoke weed, and they want to say that this means they can do it. Even stripping away the fact that I think biblically there's no defense for using marijuana. 
even right. stripping that away, you still do not have the right to just ignore the laws of the federal government unless those laws compel you to violate God's laws in the process of obeying them. That's the one scenario. But I don't know any, I can't put together any argument in my head that would say God's law says you have to smoke weed, so therefore the federal government can be ignored. Right. And for that matter, all the admonishment that we get from Paul to live, in fact, a quiet life of service and love just goes against rubble rousing, if you will. Yes. Rabble rousing against issues that you just want to be right on or you want to extend some kind of liberty on your own. It it just doesn't make sense. I, yeah. I don't think that, again, that what should be normative is trying to find a way to go against the government in any capacity, whether that's federal or state. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And the only reason, here's the thing, there's going to come a day, presumably, either in our lifetime or shortly, there, shortly thereafter, where this question will totally be irrelevant because we're going to actually have to take a stance on real issues yeah. of conviction and conscience that are beyond just abortion, but the government is going to compel us to go and violate God's law. And then we're not going to care right. about whether or not you can smoke weed yeah, uh, because we're going to be actually persecuted for what we believe. So I'd rather live and be quiet and serve and love and be obedient and know that in doing so, I'm actually honoring God and that he is I think there's a certain kind of reward that comes with that kind of obedience. And so I'm going to save up my energy for the big guns, if you will. Yeah. And that's not a comment about gun rights. That was just a <laughs> metaphor for large issues. Yeah. And I would add too that it's really important for us to be praying for particularly our local government. Uh, yes. Because if you look at just taking the example of abortion, the, the, the areas that we're actually making progress in the fight against abortion is at the local state level. So there are a number of states that have on the books and are being proposed to their state legislature total bans on abortion. That is amazing. Now, we can say, well, that will never pass or the Supreme Court will strike it down or whatever. But that's amazing. That's really amazing that those are on the books. Now, where it comes in, and this is where the doctrine of the lesser magistrate comes in, is you might have a state like Alabama or Mississippi that are putting these restrictions on abortion up to and including, in some cases, a, a total ban on abortion. And the, the federal government is saying, no, you can't do that because that's not lawful. Because Roe versus Wade says that women have a right to certain kinds of medical procedures, blah, blah, blah. I don't know all right. the details. That's an instance where the lesser magistrate is standing up to the greater magistrate and saying no. Now, the state is not a lesser magistrate, but in the way that this is functioning, in the way that our current government is arranged, that's kind of how it ends up functioning. And so we need to pray for our local legislature, because if we're going to make progress towards implementing laws that are more just, as we talked about in the previous question, that's going to happen by praying for and influencing our local state legislators and our local town legislators. Because that's where that's where they're the most accountable is to their local constituency. We all love to think that our congressman sitting in Washington is accountable to us and really knows what we're looking for, but they they don't. They really usually don't. Um, they're thinking in broad categories across an entire state, and in almost every state, there's enough varying voices that they can really kind of support whatever side they really want to in the first place, and then they follow party lines. But in local state and city elections, local state and city legislation, 
Christians as individuals have so much more influence than they do at a regional or a, um, a, a federal level. Right on. So get out and vote. And get out and pray. Or get yeah. in your prayer closet and pray. Get in that closet. Yes. We should start a new. You, do you remember the Rock the Vote? The MTV's Rock the Vote? Yes, I do. We should that. have like a Reformed Brotherhood Rock the Prayer. Rock the Prayer Closet? Rock the Prayer Closet. Hashtag. I don't know. Rock the pair of closets. <laughs> We're like the least cool people in the world. I mean, marketing is not really our thing. No, so. it's not. We have a cool logo. That's really about it. We do. That's that's pretty legit. So how about we do one more? Let's do it. We're going to have to fly, but I think we can do it. No, we got this. We got All right, it. One more voicemail. Here it is. Hello, gentlemen. This is Jimmy from Philadelphia. I, wanted to, I heard your, your conversation regarding... Muslims men receiving dreams of telling them to pursue, that tell them to pursue Jesus and coming to faith later. I know that you guys have identified yourself as cessationists in the past, and I wonder how you interpret these phenomena. Uh, it's clear that you acknowledge them happening, so you're not dismissing them as legends or fables. Um, but how do we make sense of it as people who believe that the canon is closed? Um, make sense of God, essentially speaking verbally outside of this, or do we interpret them in a different way? I guess, how does that play into people who would affirm personal prophecies or small prophecies that happen outside of the canon today, uh, such as Sam Storms and John Piper? Uh, yeah. I, the other question is, is there a way in which God can reveal himself that's not inherently revelatory is what we believe is the situation that revelation has ceased or that there's no new revelation but how could god ever speak in such a way that wouldn't constitute revelation yeah those are our thoughts thanks for what you do grace and peace so i love this question this is a great one to end up on jimmy is our man from philadelphia and so his question as i understand it is kind of three parts real quick so he's asking, how do we make sense of dreams, which we spoke about in the previous episode, based on one, our position as cessationist, two, the fact that the canon is closed, and three, that there, there are some opinions of others, and he gives Sam Storms and John Piper concerning this personal prophecy. So how do yeah. we wrap up or kind of juxtapose dreams with all that stuff? You, you start, I'll just jump in. Yeah, so the, the ultimate question that he poses here is, is there a way for God to reveal himself that is not inherently revelatory? And I right. think the nature of the question answers itself. No, there's no way for God to reveal himself that is not inherently revelatory. So the question then that we have to ask, particularly about dreams, is, is that God revealing himself or not? Um, and so in, our, in the context of our conversation, we were talking about Muslims who are in, experiencing dreams of some sort that um, are compelling them to find Christians. They, they have a dream uh, where a man who is identified as Jesus compels them or advises them or directs them to seek out Christians who then preach the gospel to them and they become converted. Um, I would not say that a dream of that nature is inherently revelatory. Um, I would also make room for the fact that sometimes God just uses dreams that have a natural providential nature. Right? right. So you may have a dream um, this is a kind of a wild example, but you might have a dream where you get in a car accident and you wake up the next morning and you feel like you don't want to go to work because you you are just upset by this dream. And then you stay home and the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and you have a discussion with them about the gospel. 
and one of them comes to Christ, right? Okay. Now, that's not a revelatory dream. That's just a providential dream. It has nothing to do with theology. It has nothing to do with God giving you new information or even explaining information from the Bible. It's, it's just a dream. But God still providentially uses that. So I would right. submit that the dreams that these Muslim people are having are not revelatory dreams that you might see like Joseph's dreams of the 12 stars and the 12 sheaves of wheat. That's a revelatory dream, right? That was a prophetic dream. And the Bible says that God used to communicate to us in a variety of ways by the prophets and in other ways. Um, the dreams that the Muslims are having are not revelatory dreams. They're, I would say they're natural dreams that God is providentially ordering and using in order to bring about the conversion of these people. That's also the way I understand it from speaking with people who had those types of dreams, that what they're not encountering in the dream is some kind of revelation of extra biblical data. And it's not prophetic in the way, like you said, that it portends something or it looks out into the future. We, we might say prophetic in the sense that it teaches or not even teaches, but it, it demonstrates something that is already known or more likely what it does is just the presence of somebody who they believe is Jesus compels them to want to talk about it with somebody else. Right. Or to understand the truth. So it's not something totally new and different. At least that's the way I'm understanding most of these dreams. Yeah. And and what I would say is the difference is um, the kind of revelatory experience that Jimmy is talking about is a direct, unmediated experience with God. Right. Right. Joseph's dream was a direct, unmediated uh, information download into his brain from God. The dreams that these Muslim folks are having. Um, are not. They're not. They're providentially ordered dreams that God is providentially ordering. I'm going to have a dream tonight of some sort that is providentially ordered by God. It may serve some purpose. It may not, but it's providentially ordered. It's not revelatory in that sense. And I would say that, uh, um, barring some sort of um, some sort of prophetic confirmation, uh, they're they're not either. The Muslim dreams are not either. They're just providentially ordered dreams. Right. Um, and, and so I think that that kind of um, that kind of gets at the second question. The fact that the canon's closed, this doesn't interact with it at all because these aren't revelatory. Right, exactly. Dreams. The third part of his question here, I think, is something that's really interesting that I want to talk a little bit about. Do you have any thoughts on on this before I move on to that? Oh no, sorry, that was the segue. That was I the segue. You- <laughs> I thought you were taking a bath. Well, I just, before you get into that, I wanted to say like generally for anybody listening that sensationism is not automatically a moratorium on the person or the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. So I think both of us would say our primary concern is that God and his word be exalted and that not be cheapened with watered down substitutes. So that's part of my issue with making this in the kind of continuous camp, because then we have to redefine everything. We have to redefine what it means to be healed or redefine what it means to have prophecy rather than just letting the scripture be forthright in context. So I love the Holy Spirit. I'm going to presume that you do as well. I love the Holy Spirit. I would never want to do anything to discredit his work, diminish his attributes or downplay his ministry. And so I think that there is something here, like you're saying, that is providentially ordered. God's sovereign prerogative is still at work here, even though the dream not be prophetic in the classical sense in like Old Testament view, right? So I'm not saying we can have our cake and eat it too, because I'm making a clear distinction here, but it's not as if God cannot just use these dreams without it being an unmediated communication. Right. And for them still not to lead 
down the line toward eventual regeneration and salvation. Yeah, and I would actually I would hesitate to apply the term prophetic to it, and here's why: is that oftentimes we think about cessationism versus continuationism as the cessation of gifts or the continuation of gifts. But really, what it's about, if you talk to a well-informed cessationist, is it's the cessation of the apostolic office. Yeah, exactly. Right? And the right. prophetic office of the New Testament. Those right. two offices, and the, depending on which cessationist you talk to, the cessation of the evangelist office as well. Those offices have ceased, and so the execution of the miracles in reference to those offices have also ceased. Now, there may be other miracles that happen. There may be, and I think there are miracles and that happen are. in our world now, but those miracles are not a continuation of the apostolic, prophetic, and evangelistic ministry of the first century. So that's where the that's where it really closes here. Is um, these dreams, even if we acknowledge that they are somehow direct, uh, semi-revelatory messages from God, which I don't, but even if we did, they are still not a continuation of the apostolic, prophetic, and evangelistic gifts of the first century or offices of the first century. Right. And for that matter, now that I think about it, whenever I have had conversations about these types of dreams, I'm realizing that one of the hallmarks of them, at least in my experience, is that they are a bit mysterious. In other words, it's not altogether clear. Right. It's requiring clarification or understanding. It's something that prompts rather than clarifies. Exactly. It doesn't shut the door. It actually opens the door. So if they were prophetic, then we keep I keep throwing that around, even though you're like, please don't use that word. Um, I I don't like that either because generally we're thinking about telling the future, honestly. Right. And and that's a problem. So I presume that's kind of where you're going with this opinion of others yes. concerning personal prophecy. Yes. So Sam Storms, John Piper, Matt Chandler, a few of the big modern names. Um, this is most notably a view advocated by Wayne Grudem. He was kind of the founder of this understanding of prophecy, which since this was less than a hundred years ago, should tell you what I think about it. But <laughs> Wayne Gru- we just can't get away from Wayne Grudem I know, man. on this podcast. I know. Wayne Grudem more or less argues that the, the post-apostolic ministry of prophecy or gift of prophecy is a fallible gift of personal prophecy. So it's no longer a prophecy that is revealing something about God or God's intentions for the world writ large or for God's people writ large, but it is now reduced. Well, he wouldn't say reduced. It is now relegated to prophecy that is involved in personal edification that may or may not be correct. So that is, that's what's being said when you talk of when Sam Storms talks about prophecy, I read um, Sam Storms uh, book, uh, practicing the power, which was an interesting read. I can't say that I recommend it, but it was certainly interesting. It was well-written. Um, and he says straight out, like sometimes we prophesy and we're wrong. Well, in the Old Testament, you get stoned to death if you. Do that. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I don't want to minimize Wayne Grudem's um, scholarly credentials or his ability as a New Testament scholar. He's a competent exegete, even though I think he gets several notable things wrong. He's still a competent exegete. So, I would encourage you to investigate his view yourself, read it, read it yourself. But um, I will just go out and say it that the idea that God is communicating prophetically. Um, through people in a way that's not infallible, it, it just doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't make any sense of the New Testament data. I don't think systematically, theologically speaking, it just doesn't work. So um, I think they would say these are prophetic dreams because sometimes they don't come true, and that's okay. 
but on the classic def the classic reformed understanding of prophecy, what the gift of prophecy was, the fact that sometimes these dreams don't come to pass, sometimes they contain errors in terms of the nature of Jesus and who he is and how he reveals himself, uh, that eliminates it from the category of prophecy for the classically reformed understanding. All right, so one more question for you. Mm-hmm. Would you say that this has been the definitive question cast? Well, up until this point, it has been the definitive question cast. <laughs> but leaving the door open, we're not we're not done with question casts. So that is right. The non-apostolic ministry of question casts continues into the future. Yeah, it does. So if you felt like you'd love to get in on this conversation and throw your voice into the conversation because it is your civic duty or to call if for some reason you're Wayne Grudem. I would love it if we got a phone call from Wayne Grudem. I'm not going to lie. Wayne Grudem, if you ever hear this, you have an open invitation to come on our show and talk about whatever you want. Anytime, any place. Yeah, we will, we will publish a special episode for Wayne Grudem or Bruce Ware or Doug Wilson or any of the people we've been critical of. If they want to come on the show, open invitation. Absolutely. I, let's cut to Wayne Grudem, who I love if he was listening to this, was like, I'm not sure if I should call. And then you were like, Wayne, yeah. it's okay. You should call. And he's like, oh, he, yeah. He, okay, picked, great. he just picked up his phone. <laughs> he did it. It came to me in a dream that Wayne Grudem is going to call us. <laughs> oh, that was actually pretty good. Yeah. All right. So if you do want to call and leave a voicemail, uh, like so many other brothers and sisters who are part of this, the number is 607 444 two seven six seven yes and we would love it now if you email us we may still use your question but as we've said in the past we are going to privilege voicemails and we're getting enough voicemails now that we probably won't get to emails on the question cast so if you want to get your question on give us a call uh, leave a voicemail if you don't want your name to be used just say that at the end of your message and we'll edit that out you can be anonymous if you want but, Give a fake name. Yep. Use a voice modulator. You can call and sound like Bane from <laughs> Batman if you want. Whatever you want. Actually, I would love it if someone calls with a voice modulator. That'd be oh, pretty epic. That'd be so fantastic. And we're still issuing that challenge, right? If you're outside the country, mm-hmm. we would love to hear your voice and voicemail. Not that we don't love everybody who's part of the Brotherhood, but we just want to hear your lovely British accent. Yes, that would be excellent. So if, Sin- so if Sinclair Ferguson is listening to the show... <laughs> We would, even though you're not outside the United States, we'd love if you'd call too. <laughs> Special exception, because he can read whatever he wants to me, and I would just fall over and then dissolve in a puddle. Exactly, on the it'd be glorious. Not glorious, it's beautiful, but it'd be. I, that's what would happen to me as well. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, Tony. So, <laughs> yeah this this ended super well. I know. So, any last words on this particular question cast? No, I mean, these have been great questions. I've really enjoyed looking at them. Um, I hope that we've been helpful. I hope we've answered the questions in a way that's edifying and um, encouraging. But uh, we love getting these questions, so keep them coming, people. Yeah, for sure. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh, What if I'm fine?